The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I'm honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Lynn Waltz. She has been a professional journalist for more than 25 years. She's a two-time Pulitzer Prize nominee. She's also an assistant professor of journalism at the Scripps Howard School of Journalism and Communications at Hampton University in Hampton, Virginia. She is most recently the author of a terrific book titled Hog Wild, The Battle for Workers' Rights at the World's Largest Slaughterhouse, recently published by the University of Iowa Press. And the book describes how the Smithfield Slaughterhouse changed the landscape of eastern North Carolina and how and why workers there fought to unionize. It's a terrific read, and I am thrilled to have you with me. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you for having me, Melinda. Well, this is an important story because we all eat, and I think it's incredibly important for us to think about how our food was produced, who produced it, under what circumstances, and your book covers all that and more. Before we dive into this book and this larger story, I'm curious to know why you chose journalism as a profession and why this story. Well, it was interesting. I thought that I would go into journalism in high school. I was editor of the student paper, and then I went on to work at a local weekly while I was still in high school. And then I got to college, and I was really discouraged by the quality of the classes, and I switched to literature and dramatic literature and then got into theater. And so I was actually doing sort of agitprop theater in Philadelphia, but I was working as a clerk at the Philadelphia Inquirer. And the theater went out of business, and there was an editor there named Buzz Bissinger who went on to write Friday Night Lights. But at that point, he had just won a Pulitzer for his writing in criminal justice, Mm. and he asked me if I wanted to write for him. And so I dropped everything. Here was a chance to work with a Pulitzer Prize winner. And I worked with him for six months, and I switched careers. Wow. Yeah. So what was it about this particular story about a slaughterhouse and workers' rights in North Carolina that attracted your attention? Well, I was assigned by Virginia Business to do a profile of Smithfield Foods, and I had worked in Norfolk, which is right near Smithfield headquarters in Smithfield, Virginia. But as I was doing the research, and I just thought it was a straight-ahead assignment, I went back to the editors and I said, you know, Smithfield Foods, I think I said Smithfield Foods is corrupt. And they said, yeah, yeah, write that story. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Well, what I turned in was not what was published, and we went back and forth. We had to negotiate the end result. But I was fairly happy with the way that came out. And then I wrote more of a story that was what I would say more hard-hitting and more on the ground. I went down to North Carolina. Of course, we're talking about Smithfield's, the largest slaughterhouse in the world, which is in Tar Heel, North Carolina. Employs 5,000 workers, opened in 1992. And then there was this protracted labor battle. So at that point, I went down and rode around with union organizers and really did boots on the ground kind of story. That was back in 2005. And then the cases were 
slowly, painstakingly moving through the courts. And so I didn't revisit it then until really about 2010 or 11 when I was working on the thesis for my Master of Fine Arts at Old Dominion University. Well, just to give our listeners an idea, this is a 973,000 square foot slaughterhouse. It's huge. It's huge. It handles 32,000 hogs per day. Yes. Or 33 hogs per minute. Yes. So we're one every two seconds. Right. So we're talking about a tremendous amount of meat. And I, of course, in preparation for this interview, not only read your book, but also went online to see what Smithfield has to say about itself. And clearly, if you ask Smithfield, I think they would say that they are producing good food and sustainably. And so I was very interested then to dive into those three legs of the sustainable stool, which is economic, environment, and social. And I found that at least two legs of that stool were coming up a little bit short. So I live in the Midwest. I would argue that all three legs do, but go ahead. That's right. Yeah, no, you make a good point. You make a good point. The the very top percentage of the owners, I think, are doing well economically, but certainly the workers have lost quite a bit. Well, in in meatpacking in general. I mean, that's why this is such a great story, because it's a microcosm for what are the problems caused by the industrialization of the meat processing. The way that we put meat on the table. So you can't look at the world's largest slaughterhouse without looking at all of the things that you just talked about. Exactly. Slaughterhouse work is the most dangerous in the United States, certainly possibly the world, but it is absolutely dangerous, hard, punishing work. You were in the slaughterhouse. How did you get in there? When I did the story for Virginia Business, Smithfield at that point was not wary of me. I was representing what they expected to be a very pro-business publication. Sure. And so I was given a tour of the Gwaltney plant in Smithfield and was welcomed into Smithfield headquarters and sat down with Larry Pope and Joe Luter IV, who's the the man who built the business is Joe Luter III, but I met with his son. And, you know, I asked some hard questions, but, but it was very amicable. Right. So how do you know that the work is punishing? Well, for one thing, I've interviewed a lot of the workers. Right. But I've also looked at the UFCW, the RAA reports on the injuries and looked at the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And it's not only just two and a half times the average injury and illness rate, but workers are three times more likely to have injuries requiring them time off. So we're talking about, obviously, repetitive motion syndrome, but also amputations and even death. People die in slaughterhouses. I mean, it is just the reason Americans don't want to do it is because it's horrific. Right, right. The extremes in temperature, the smell is so bad. Right. It just permeates your clothes. You're just standing in one place and you're just wielding a knife, the same motion over and over and over. Right. So... Did the workers want to unionize because they wanted safer working conditions or did they want higher wages? What exactly led them to think it would be a good idea if we got together to have greater protections or higher wages in our place of employment? 
Yeah, I really think it was safety because wages, we're talking about poverty. Bladen County, where the plant is, I think it's 25%. Robeson County, I think is close to 30% or maybe 32% poverty rate. And the, at that point, the minimum wage was 4.25, and this big plant opens, and they're offering like $8 an hour. Right. I mean, this is great, right? Yeah. But people couldn't take it. There was 100% turnover every year. Wow. That had to cost Smithfield money to lose employees like that. Yes, they were constantly retraining, constantly retraining. Yeah. It's, it's just a, it's a hard business, right. no matter which way you look at it, from the employer side. It's a hard business. They couldn't even keep track of people. HR was uh, Grand Central Station. They couldn't even keep the paperwork straight. There were so many people coming and going. So did they not think that it might be a good idea to change the working conditions? Well, it wouldn't benefit them. I mean, they're solely bottom line. I mean, this is really the problem with the industrial meat. Is it's it, And you could argue it's the problem with capitalism, but, right. but it really becomes a stark moral problem in meatpacking because it is, the work is so horrendous. Yeah. I thought it was interesting because going through the book, talking about work in meatpacking plants, back in the 1950s, many more workers belonged to unions. And my father was a union worker. You know, he was able to support his family. He had benefits. And then as a society, somehow, we were shifted away from thinking that Unions were a good thing. How were we changed as a society into thinking that we don't want a, a union? And more specifically, in, at the Smithfield plant, how were workers persuaded that, no, no, you don't want a union here? Well, it's so interesting that you ask that because nobody really changed their minds. It's that, and I'll speak to meatpacking specifically, although it can be applied to other industries, but the meatpacking industry figured out a way to pick the pockets of the workers. And the way they did that was they wholesale moved the slaughtering industry from northern United cities, specifically Chicago and around that area, into rural right-to-work states. And they, so they just bypassed the union. I mean, they just broke the backs of the unions. They just opened up huge slaughterhouses. Nebraska Beef, I think the guy said, you know, he said, we'll just take the farm boys off the farm. Hmm. And it did two things. It got rid of the highly skilled butchers, and it got rid of the union workers. Right. And it replaced them with machines and disassembly lines and unskilled labor in places. You know, let's put it in a place where people are really poor. Right. And unemployment is really high. Right. And then we won't have any problems. And then when that became a problem, then undocumented workers. Well, let's hire undocumented workers, right? So it's this dot drive for the bottom line, right? Yeah. And it corrupts everyone in its path. So I would say that now in the South, yes, there has always been an antipathy for unions. And that's really complicated. It's just intertwined with the whole societal structure. And it's fascinating. But it's, but overall, it's not like people said, oh, we don't like unions anymore. The whole company's just picked up and moved. And now we're seeing Boeing moved into the South, Nissan moved into the South, Somebody else I just read about, big plants in the South, because the South is known for uh, you can't unionize in the South. And that's one of the things that's really incredible about this story is it's an anomaly. Not only is it the biggest union win of the 21st century, it's the biggest win in the South, I mean, since Norma Ray. I, I'm not sure that's accurate, but you know what I'm saying. Right. Well, I was very interested in the whole right-to-work issue 
because as more states are voting on this, I believe you have a quote. There was an individual who described how there is a push to have federal legislation, which would make right to work a federal standard rather than simply state by state, which concerned me a lot. Right. Because with unions, there was also some discussion about how as unions faltered, workplace injuries soared. Right. And the middle class continued to shrink. As That's we- right. So it's not a good idea to have right to work, even though it sounds like, you know, it's got this warm, fuzzy title, sort of like... kind of Orwellian, yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Same thing with the Labor Relations Institute, which is a professional anti-union consultant. You know, you really, you don't know what these titles mean anymore. Yeah, I mean, if unions were 75% of corporations involved in a union fight, hire union consultants or union busters. 75%. I mean, it works. Mm. It works. You terrify the workers. They terrify the workers, and that's what they did at Smithfield. Right. But right to work does two things. It means that you don't have to join the union. You can be represented by the union, but you don't have to join. And if they strike, you don't have to strike. So it undermines the financial stability and the power, and it takes away the strongest tool. Because if you don't have the power to strike, you don't have the power to bring the corporations to the negotiating table. And the corporations know that. And so they just, that's why we have wage stagnation. Exactly. Lynn, let me take one break. Remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Lynn Waltz. She is a two-time Pulitzer Prize nominee. She is a professor at the Scripps Howard School of Journalism and Communications at Hampton University in Hampton, Virginia. And we are talking about her terrific book, titled Hog Wild, The Battle for Workers' Rights at the World's Largest Slaughterhouse. I want to talk about this drive to lower the price of meat. For some reason, all we ever see, or I guess it's easiest to see, is the price at the checkout. We don't realize how this industrialized food system is basically profiting by harming worker well-being and environmental protection. And Smithfield in particular, I know you interviewed Robert Kennedy about water pollution. Let's talk a little bit about how these costs are being taken away from the shelf and passed on to consumers. Well, they're not exactly. This is what makes it so slippery. I mean, consumers see the low prices and they see the shrink-wrapped meat and they're perfectly happy. But it's Smithfield, or I would argue any major meat producer and processor. Mm -hmm. They can't put meat on your plate without breaking the law. They can't do it without corrupting politicians. In some cases, they can't do it without torturing animals. They can't do it without paying low wages. They outsource the high cost of environmental cleanup. But that's on the citizens, right? Yes. That's not on the consumers. So this is what... In my analysis piece that I did for the Washington Post, this was my argument. Consumers aren't seeing the high cost that we as a society are paying environmentally and with workers and now with undocumented workers, with the business model based on paying vulnerable people who don't have any rights. I mean, we really have to stop and force ourselves to look at the moral costs 
of these great deals that we're getting. And that's not just food. I mean, that's also clothing and you know, lots of other things. Right. All of these externalized costs. And I know when Smithfield was looking for a plant, they had sourced out a location where environmental loopholes had already been created. Right. It was the perfect location. You had a vulnerable population that was desperate for jobs. Yep. And nobody really protecting the environment. The water source, I believe, the river there had already been contaminated. We're the swimming. Cape Fear River, The yep. Cape Fear River, not swimming, not allowed. That's also the Pagan River, which is at Smithfield headquarters. Right. But they then got permits to release wastewater because there's two kinds of pollution. There's the pollution from the slaughterhouse, but probably the worst pollution is from the huge number of pigs mm. that are raised then in response to feed this voracious slaughterhouse. Right. But yeah, the Cape Fear River then, they had, I don't know how many marks against them with, with illegal discharges into the Cape Fear River. Yeah. Such a shame. And but the know, big problem is the hog lagoons. That's where Kennedy really got involved in North Carolina. Right. And this is happening in other states in the yes. Union where these, I guess, the, the farm workers or the, we want to say they're individual family farmers, but really they're more like sharecroppers. And they are really at the mercy of the individuals who are buying the hogs. And the only thing that the farmer is left with is the hog manure and that's called, by the way, there's a fancy term, you know, we call that nutrients. And they've got to super saturate farmland <laughs> with this fecal material right. that is contaminating soil and water and air and indirectly making people ill. And we don't always connect those dots. Right. And in North Carolina right now, there are these big lawsuits going on. They're called nuisance suits. And in these cases, well, it's also right-to-farm laws, which are to protect farmers. But in actuality, what's happening in North Carolina is is the hog farms moved in on the people. Some of these people, the land has been in their, their families for generations, and then all of a sudden an industrialized hog operation moves in next door and starts spraying liquid hog poop, and it aerates and lands all over your house. Right. I mean, it's horrific. But the, but the legislature is scrambling to pass laws to protect against those lawsuits. So that's happening right now. Yes. Um, and it's not uh, just in North that. Carolina. That's right. This is that's happening right. nationwide. It's, with these, right. I actually think that the right to farm legislation is very similar to right to work and that it's yes. really set up to protect corporations and Absolutely. exploit rural communities and workers. So let me make a really important point here. Please. We're talking about these farms. I mean, the industrialized process wiped 90% of independent hog farmers nationwide, 90% right. went out of business. In North Carolina, between 1986 and 2006, it went from 15,000 hog farms to 2,300. Mm-hmm. So these aren't family farms we're talking about anymore. Right. Exactly. Well, our time is limited, and I, I want to go back to Smithfield specifically because they did have a victory in becoming unionized. And you speak with union organizer Gene Bruskin, and he says, victories need to be celebrated. We need to talk about them. How did the workers win the right to be unionized at Smithfield? Well, it was a confluence of international, national forces combined with collective action and tremendous individual will and government action. So it's tricky because it's 
an incredible win, but it's also an anomaly that all of these forces played in at the same time, and some things have changed. But first, the government found Smithfield guilty. So that's a foundation to build on. And even though it took them 16 years for that to play out in the courts, because the, the government is so weak, its regulations are so weak, and its enforcement is so weak, it provided a really solid foundation for the union to build on. And then the workers and the injury levels they were able to brand Smithfield. The, the slogan was justice at Smithfield, and the other slogan was packaged with abuse. And then you had a comprehensive campaign by the union, which branded Smithfield as being abusive to its workers. And that grew, and then they had a boycott. And uh, meanwhile, inside the plant, there was collective action going on, and that required the unity of Latino workers with black workers. And at the same time, you had immigration crackdowns. So, I mean, it was all pretty crazy, right? Yeah, it's like a perfect storm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's interesting to look at, as you described, this microcosm at Smithfield where employers were pitting one group against each other. And I see in our society how we're pitted against each other oftentimes instead of coming together and working for true sustainability in the food system. So yep. this is an important read, I think, for many levels, not only to protect our food system and to look out for the future and create a better future, but to understand how we are manipulated through legislation and, and rhetoric in all ways in our society. And I think what's been interesting is that people are, are realizing this. When ICE comes in and busts up a slaughterhouse, American citizens are raising money to help them, to help the families, to help the children who are left behind because they just round up their parents. And then these children are left at school and the school teachers don't know what to do with them yeah. because the parents have disappeared, right? Right. And, and we're seeing all of this backlash with what's going on on the border right now with immigration enforcement. I mean, this is just something as a, as a society, we just, we have to fix this. It's just an immoral system. Right. Well, Smithfield was purchased by a large Chinese company in 2013. Mm -hmm. How is that going to change, if anything, the situation? I'm not sure. These lawsuits in North Carolina are very interesting because if they, along with taking these huge profits are forced to begin to pay for some of this outsourced cost, especially with pollution. This is going to change the game. I don't know. The legislature is working very hard to keep that from happening. Yeah. But they won the first round, $50 million in damages, which were immediately reduced, I think, to 250000 per person. I'm not, you know, right. I'm not following that, but they win. Juries don't like industrialized animal factories. Right. I know you've been going around the country and you've been giving some talks. You were at a, a talk recently in Washington, D.C. Who is reading your book and what kind of questions are they asking you? Well, a lot of it is, is labor because yeah. labor needs to look at a victory and figure out how to to go forth. But the other group of people are people that are increasingly concerned about how food is getting on the table, farm to table. Mm -hmm. um, right. Not so much organic, but they, they want to make sure that the food that they eat represents their moral values. Right. And so I've talked to a lot of people that are, that are looking at this for, for that reason as well. 
Yeah. Well, I think it's an important piece of incredible documentation over so many years about what has happened with our meat production, with labor, and with environment. And I hope that you get a lot more readers applying this to the food on our plates. That's the mission of the show. What would you like to pull out of this book for our listeners? Well, I think that the main thing is this idea that when you buy meat and you're looking for low prices, that we're paying a very high price. We're actually paying a very high price. And to think about what it would take to buy meat that is morally sustainable and pay a little bit more and make that choice, make that a personal moral choice. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up because I often, as dietitian, we look at hunger issues. We look at people's access to food that will keep them well and protect the environment. And I often have to go back to the economic piece and say, I don't think the question should be, how can we make food cheaper? I think the real crux of the issue is, how can we make sure that people earn a living wage Mm -hmm. so that they can buy good food with dignity? Yes. Yes. Were you surprised by anything when you were doing this exhaustive research on this book? Uh, There were surprises every step of the way. I think one of the big surprises for me was was when the editor convinced me to tell the entire story of the unionization because originally it was one woman's story, a woman who stood up to Smithfield Foods and won. She became the lead witness for the government. And then when there was a gag, there's a federal gag order, and then when the head of the campaign agreed to talk and said, what are they going to do to me? I'm in my 70s. This story has to be told. This is an important story, and there's this federal gag order, and nobody knows about it, and I'm going to tell this story. I'm going to help you tell this story. That was a surprise. That was a, that was a great surprise. Mm-hmm. I hope that journalism, I know certainly the journalism that I do, the writing that I do, I always hope that that work will change policy in some way. Do you have your eye on certain policies that you'd like to see changed? Definitely, definitely. I mean, the the big thing that the low-hanging fruit is the undocumented workers. Yeah. The the business model based on undocumented workers is is unsustainable. And then secondarily, raising the wages, uh, raising minimum wage, and allowing for workers to sustain themselves. We can't exist as a society. I mean, we're in a new gilded age. I mean, to really look at the big picture, we're in a new gilded age and the loss of the middle class makes the society unsustainable. And so I really look to see a new progressive movement. I look at young people. I look at what they're doing with the gun movement, uh, the anti-gun movement. And, uh, and I, I think, I think there's going to be a big backlash and I think we're going to see a new progressive movement a new progressive era, and I'm, I'm extremely hopeful. I am too. We'll end on that hopeful note. Unfortunately, our time has come to an end, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guests for this truly important piece of work. 
Lynn Waltz. She is the author of Hog Wild, The Battle for Workers' Rights at the World's Largest Slaughterhouse, published by University of Iowa Press in 2018. And you can go to lynnwaltz.com for more information about getting this book, asking your library to carry this book, and using it as a wonderful read for book discussion, book groups, and clubs. And that's Lynn with two N's, Waltz, W-A-L-T-Z dot com. Lynn, thank you so much for being my guest and for this book. Oh, thank you for having me. Mm-hmm.